Hello everyone and welcome to Struggle Session. I am your host, Leslie Lee III. Special big two-part show today. First up, Jack Allison, my co-host, the host of Jack AM on Twitch, joins me along with Jesse Hawkins, writer, rock on tour, to talk about Beatles Get Back, the amazing, amazing Peter Jackson documentary. And after the main show, a special bonus. An excerpt from the Katie Halper show where I was fortunate enough to talk to both Steven Donziger, famed environmental rights attorney, and a humble bass player named Roger Waters. Katie is going to be doing a huge show on December 8th at 7 p.m. along with tons of guests including Susan Sarandon, Richard Wolf, Roger Waters again, as well as Lucy Lawless, yes, Xena Warrior Princess herself, Nina Turner, all sorts of great people there to talk about the unjust prosecution of Donziger. Please check it out if you have a chance. As always, thank you so much for subscribing to us on patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus we have tons of amazing bonus episodes including a recent one about castlevania one more announcement before i will be giving a talk on the wisdom app this is a paid show folks that's a wrestling term wrestling term and it's when someone who just loves what you do is like hey come do your show here see what's up we'll pay you to do it and that's what i'm doing over there on the wisdom app they actually didn't give me any sort of copy to read but hey it's called Wisdom. It's an app. You can find it in your app stores. Uh, and you'll be able to call in. I've been wanting to do call-ins for a while, but it actually is very difficult between, you know, Twitch and all and Discord and putting that together into a coherent way. So they have a couple of apps now. They're trying to do the call-in show thing all in one. Wisdom is one of them. I'm going to check it out. Check it out with me Thursday night, this Thursday 8 p.m. My username on there is Leslie Lee III. Call in. Tell me what you think about classic rock. Tell me what you think about the Beatles, Pink Floyd, whatever. We'll have a good time. And now, on with the show. Jesse, Jack, let's talk Get Back. As a non-Beatles fan, I love this movie. It made me absolutely fall in love with all the guys and the girls uh I, I you know I, I love yoko now i love john i wish they were my friends i wish i could hang out with them back in the day i wish they didn't have to be the beatles though because you <laughs> you could see just on uh, this is the band i feel like at their maybe lowest point at their worst where they're just trying to crank out some tunes for like like they're like someone is cranking out a jingle they're like we gotta get in we got this much much time to get it done we need to write these songs in the beginning when john lennon pulls out like a hundred old crappy songs and tries like in order to repurpose them i was like oh my god man these guys are just at work these guys are just at work and they're all stressed out about all this stuff but it made me like 
really appreciate them as people even even if i don't not a big fan of them as a band or it didn't change my opinion about the beatles music sadly i think if you go in expecting that you're going to hear a lot of the beatles sounding really bad for the vast for especially the early part they sound like pretty crappy and they admit it too like they're they're trying to build this new album after not playing together for three years and it just is not going well and that's the beauty of it to see this big band expose their raw bits like this i think is you know absolutely amazing documentary Mm -hmm. probably too long for most people to get through um but absolutely worth checking out at least the first part uh of it you know the way i kind of felt at least with regard to the length even if i don't get into all my thoughts right now is that i was very daunted by the length of this documentary and seeing what the run times of each episode were um it, it goes pretty fast, I would say, you know, even for as long as these episodes are, you know, and you can even make complaints like I'm like, yeah, they kind of are for lots of it, just kind of noodling around doing the same song over and over again. But I don't know. I, I, I would even tell people to just like start watching the first one and see if you don't just accidentally watch this in like less than 12 hours, yeah. <laughs> like this eight hour documentary, because that's kind of what happened to me is I just like started around to I do want to tell people that you can't. And skip around. In fact, if you just want to watch the first episode and then kind of skip around from there before listening to this, you might want to do that. I think people have put up watch guides. I think um, the first episode, mostly you want to watch. The second episode, you want to watch the first 15 minutes because there's like a secret recorded uh, conversation in it, which is oh, so voyeuristic and so good. And then you want to watch the last part of the third episode because you get this really great concert where the Beatles sound amazing and you also get like all these british people just absolutely pissed off that the beatles are playing outside a lot of them very happy a lot of them happy about it too they did get a lot of like surprising you know older ladies being like i love the beatles too or whatever (laughs) or you know or or sort of uh british gentlemen walking around going oh they they sound pretty good didn't it you know (laughs) (laughs) would you let your daughter marry a beetle well they've got money don't they you know but they have no idea that this is the end of a gigantic period in uh, in English mm-hmm. culture and world culture and music culture. I mean, that's it for these guys. I thought it was very poignant. And I also thought that you got a sense in the film of the sort of uh, the, a possible future that wound up not happening. Like maybe the Beatles would have, uh, maybe they would have, uh, if they had stuck together, if they had brought Billy Preston in as the fifth Beatle, they might have had a whole different 70s. Yeah, there was some interesting talk sort of, I think it was in the first or second episode about like, does it have, I think it was the second episode of like, does it have to be us four? Like, is the Beatles definitely like these four guys? Does it have to be that? And yeah, that kind of would have been an interesting, you know, different road for it to take. And also, you know, I, 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 you know, I am a fan of the Beatles. I like the Beatles and I still didn't know most of the, you know, sort of just factual information in this. Like I had no idea about the Billy Preston story and everything like that and him playing, you know, on the whole album with them. Um, So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think I fell into it certainly as like a fan of the album, Let It Be. And it is interesting to watch them make Let It Be. But I would also like to say, you know, that this is a a really impressive documentary, you know, made from this sort of just excessive amount of footage. You know, Um, it felt like only in the first one 
and it worked really well but it felt like in the first one there were some cheats like there were some shots like of like dubbed over audio with them not actually being shot saying that yeah. but once they move out of the the first Twicken Twickenhamshire or whatever <laughs> the first uh, uh, studio it gets like it's just it's just really incredible footage actually it's incredible and um and yeah it's it's an impressively made you know it's impressively coherent you know for for sort of just all this these reels of footage and i do want to sort of say that yeah peter jackson has made a very good nine hour movie here which this really is a nine hour movie more than it is like a tv series or anything like that yeah he talked about uh the length uh, of this disney wanted it to be two and a half hours and i am so grateful that he didn't do because if he had put out a two and a half hour version we know what that looks like and it would be the same shit we've seen before like oh the boys struggled a little bit in the beginning but at the end of the day they brought it all together yeah but we wouldn't actually learn anything about them as people we wouldn't learn about the band we would just know the what the story that the fairy tale that we already know but he insisted on like making he said it would be a crime against music history to put this footage back in the vault for another uh 50 years so all credit to peter jackson for actually telling like disney and the beatles like no this needs to be uh, longer than this we need to have the swearing in he couldn't yeah. get as much of the drugs i think he pro- he had to cut I heard some about of the drugs that. Stuff. apparently when apparently peter, the peter seller, seller show, scene shows yes. up Apparently that scene originally he like goes on and talks about like how they, you know, how he really enjoyed the weed they smoked together last time. (laughs) And now he's like, I'll bring some of that next time. But Disney did make them cut that. And and I will say the Peter Sellers sequence is like a little strange, you know, without that in there. It almost seems like Peter Sellers showed up and was shy. But I guess that's not really the case. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I was impressed that uh, that Disney allowed uh, their service to show people smoking and people swearing uh-huh. and people talking about heroin casually. Like, <laughs> yes. You know, like Disney has like s- extreme rules about that shit yeah. on their service. And I guess only <laughs> Peter Jackson and the Beatles can trump That's anything it. like that. Yeah. I still wouldn't be surprised if a special edition comes out at some point <laughs> where they're like eating bananas all the time or something like that whenever it's like a cigarette. Yeah. One thing that has been not addressed is that John Lennon is on heroin for most of this movie, yeah. from from what we understand. <laughs> yeah. And yes, it's just yeah, kind of... Yeah. It kind of goes there, like, unstated. Like, it's in yeah. the subtext. You yeah. know what I mean? It's definitely in the subtext of what we're seeing. Well, like, I, you know, I, I heard people saying, you know, they should have made more of the fact that he was on heroin. It was like, what is there to say exactly? Like, don't you know yeah. that he is? Yeah. Like, he's pretty checked out. He seems pretty spacey and checked out, showing up late, all sorts of weird shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that little moment where uh, Lennon is talking about how he got really high last night and was watching movies. And then McCartney's yes. like, do we have to talk about this in public, Mr. Lennon? <laughs> like, like so fast. Like, but, you know, I don't know if you guys know, but like in 1968, Paul had a bit of a Coke problem that he had gotten over in, by 1969. So oh, he see, was maybe I, a little judgy by that point. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was just a little bit more of that stuff because these were like fucking rock and roll guys who had, you know, gone, uh, gotten a little bit calmer about it uh, from what it seems. So I kind of would like to see more of that, you know, talk of that, of the old crazy shit they might have done. You mm-hmm. know, kind of with that said, though, you know, 
I think this it's all so dependent on the footage that they got. You know what I yes. mean? I know a lot of it had to do with like what they what Disney allowed them to keep in and everything like that, but you know, I want to give the caveat to like, you know, wish we'd seen more of that. I don't want to have seen any more of that if it would have meant, you know, talking head interviews or anything like that, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like yeah. I really like, you know, the it's almost like a reality show or something like yeah, that. It's, it's like, like it, so it's, no, Jack, unedited. It remind, I was going to say, it reminded me of Real Housewives. Yeah, I, I actually get that, especially with the ending of the first episode where it's like, oh, there's a blow up and then he like walks out, you yeah, know? know? He walks out and then we have a cliffhanger on like, is he going to come to the party or whatever? <laughs> like he got offended. And it also like kind of like Housewives, like the blow up kind of happens off camera and they have to like kind of explain yeah. what happened. You know what I mean? Like, there's all this text with him being like, see you at the clubs or whatever. And yeah. yeah. Sort of talking about great it afterwards. line, by the way. I will, see you that's it. The I'm quitting to be, see you around. The, I, these are the fucking yeah. coolest guys that have ever lived sometime. <laughs> I swear to God. When you just look at them and their natural state, they all like are just so funny and interesting and, and, and you know, like quick with it. And one, one thing I wanted to mention about like, what footage there is and what they show when George does quit the band, the document, the filmmakers are like, uh, so what the fuck are we going to do with the documentary now? And the guys are like, what are you talking about? It's just getting good. Yeah. They're and, like, this is the best documentary. I mean, I love those parts. I mean, I, I love this. And, whole and movie even, and, and even of- like, Oh, and even the next day, uh, the documentary is goes up to Paul and basically asks him like, uh, and Paul, he's basically asked him, like, you know, how honest are we going to be with this? Right. And Paul doesn't understand the question. He thinks the filmmaker is accusing him of not being honest in front of the cameras. He doesn't even understand that the filmmaker is saying, like, hey, do you want me to, like, cut some of this stuff out or stop filming Paul is this supposed to be a puff piece or is this like you know are we like are we really doing this you know he's like what are you fucking talking about I've been fucking doing it the whole time (laughs) he's like I think we've been being pretty real yeah I love again like this is all stuff that you definitely would not have in there with a shorter cut but I love how like the camera kind of widens out to show the documentary filmmakers and this is so much also about like documentary filmmaking in a weird way. It's really so good. It really is like very compelling. I think, I mean, it operates on a few levels for me. It's sort of about the Beatles, obviously, and it's about the making of the get back sessions and all that jazz, but it's also about documentary filmmaking. It's about Mm -hmm. the creative process. It's about uh, fucking up all the time before you succeed. Yeah, you know, and and like, and this movie has so much breathing room for that. I mean, I, I mean, this is what I love. This is what I wanted to see from streaming services. The way that people mm-hmm. will binge watch nine episodes of fucking Squid Game or whatever, to have <laughs> uh, a giant, uh, you know, like it, it felt like you had this weird dream last night where you were hanging around with the Beatles and they were working on Get Back <laughs> and somebody, <laughs> managed, you know, and the weird. The way that people are like smooth Ringo com- sort of complaints, it's like, yeah, but that's how it would feel like in your dream too, a little bit. <laughs> oh god, you know? like yeah. this is this is about uh, the real question about this movie is about film restoration and preservation, and the, the the source material was garbage, and they managed to make it look very very dreamlike. Yeah, 
Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, again, it's, it's really impressive filmmaking. It really is like and it and it does and it does feel so much like a labor of love too. Like you know mm-hmm. that, you know, Peter Jackson has uh, I don't know. It, it's just a, it's a it's a it's a really remarkable little film to be honest with you. Big film, yeah. big film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and again it just always strikes me it's like he could have just made this another uh hagiography. It could have just been about how great the Beatles are. He has the footage for that. Uh, you're just, um, you know, flooded with all this footage of them just being so normal and mundane mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. them talking about not being able to play, you know, the song, yeah. mm-hmm. the, the song like George Harrison, generally considered the best musician, the Beatles is like showing up and talking about how great Eric Clapton is like every day. He sounds like a fan. <laughs> it's like Salieri ish or something like that. Like, yeah. Especially in that first one, he keeps showing up and he's being like, man, fucking Eric Clapton <laughs> is going all the way. Holy shit. I'm fucked. He like really like seems like he's being left in the dust is what he what he feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, and didn't George Harrison's wife take off on him with Eric Clapton? Oh, I didn't even know that. That's yeah. a very funny additional uh, element. Actually, Patty Boyd left George because of his various affairs with multiple women, including Ringo's wife. She married Eric Clapton a couple years after the divorce from George Harrison, which uh, kind of goes with a running theme in this documentary. Because there was a rumors <laughs> that when he quit, they were just going to bring in fucking. Uh, that's what Eric that's Clapton. What, that's what Paul says. He's like, he's like, if he's not back that. by Tuesday, then call Clapton. <laughs> another so amazing funny. burn. That's another so scorched funny. earth diss, right? Like, just call Clapton. <laughs> like, you can replace George Harrison really easily. Yeah. Like, you know, the other thing my main concern when they were working on this documentary and the trailer made me worry too that it was gonna whitewash everything like it was a you know you might have heard that we were fighting all the time while we were recording this but we actually had a great time that's Uh and we're gonna show you all the fun that we had and they sure did have fun but at the same time uh there's all this ugliness in it too and I, i wanted to talk to you guys about the part that blew my mind that i didn't know which was how Get Back started off as this song of making fun of white nationalists. Oh, yes, yeah. it is. It has the like, I, I didn't have, I, I, it's not in there, but, you know, the original lyrics are like people in the U.S. talking about Puerto Ricans or something yeah. like that, which is yeah, very funny. Origi- and, you know. Yeah, I did. I was familiar with the song because um, the demo, the demo has been out for forever and it's called No Pakistanis. That's the name yeah. of the song. And it, uh, there's this great interview from like 1983 uh, in Rolling Stone with Paul where he talks about the song because the um, the right wing newspapers dug up this demo and were accusing him of being racist. And he's like, yeah. Whoa, what the fuck are you talking about? I was it was an anti-racist song because he was singing as a character. Uh, as a racist, but he clearly thought better of the lyrics. That's why it's not in the uh, final <laughs> version. And that's one aspect of it I wanted to mention because uh, people pulled that the clip of the you know the one maybe version twelve or thirteen of Get Back from this, and were like, oh my god, the genius of the Beatles pulling Get Back, just a uh, Paul McCartney pulling Get Back out of the ether. When in reality, <laughs> like he works on it for uh, for yes. days on end. He did fifty nine different versions. One of those versions being No Pakistanis. He thought better of it. He he what impressed me was the workman like you know mentality all these yeah, guys just especially paul doing it. Yeah. and he was yeah, like all in the, we need to keep working on this 
Yeah, we yeah. need to like they approached it like you were building a house, and like you just tell these are just four lads from Liverpool doing their job, and that's what I loved about it. I loved when yeah. when George went when he left and said see you around the clubs. Uh, they were like, okay, we're gonna go over to George's house, and Ringo's like, oh, I was planning on going there anyway, and then they found out that he went <laughs> that he went to Liverpool. Like it's like so cliche that he even went back to Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. good. Ringo, by the way, is, is they're all so fun. The guys are so great. And Ringo is such a great presence in this for, yeah. you know, all the kind of trouble that people kind of make fun of Ringo all the time. I'm like, Ringo fucking rocks. Ringo is oh, like yeah. He's absolutely so cool. just like kind of always like almost always positive kind of just like keeping 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 things going yeah. <laughs> um, he's great in this um there was that sweet moment where paul was just playing the piano and ringo's just sitting there and he just says to the guy next to him i could just watch paul play all day yeah it's like me yeah, too the, and that's what this yeah, movie the, is <laughs> you know yeah the intimacy you get to see between them is really touching uh in a lot of ways and it that it it always upsets me when I think every time I think about like how this intimacy, this humanness was just completely uh, erased and eradicated and hurt and destroyed. Um, uh, George Harrison actually said, uh, the Beatles, we, uh, you uh, got everything from us and you took our nervous systems, you know? all the pressure that they had when they just like wanted to hang out uh, many times they say like man maybe we should just play other people's songs because they're much better than their ours i feel like they would be have been so much happier at certain points uh in this mm -hmm. documentary if they were just like a regular band just again too and that's kind of how they when they get into the studio in the second uh half that how they more uh interact with each other just you know vibing yeah no it's pure vibing um, and, and I mean, the Beatles were, uh, I think we hear something like 65 or 70 songs in this movie. So many, uh, beyond uh, the many versions we hear of certain songs, like they're always jumping into Chuck Berry or Bob yeah. Dylan songs and stuff like that when they've got downtime. I really cherished uh, seeing all that. And, you know, you could sort of hear their influences. And they seem so happy when they were doing it too. It's like it, like whenever John is smiling, that's magic uh, happening, and it's really really fun, fun to see them just having a good time uh, doing this stuff. I, I I so the reaction to a lot of this really baffled me, where people were reacting just like they react to every other Beatles concert. Uh, you know, uh, Beatles CD reissue, uh, mm -hmm. music video remaster, where they just say, wow, the Beatles were the greatest band of all time and always will be. That I don't know how you watch that documentary, this documentary and come back with that. I just come back with, wow, these are some great guys who, you know, really had, you know, spent a lot, put a lot of effort into their music, had a lot of appreciation for other people's music, and they were kind of hoisted up to this level of greatness that ultimately you know, made them a lot less happy and ended up destroying the band. Mm -hmm. and, and think of how hard it would be to hold on to your humanity with that kind of fame. I mean, like every single room that they're in, the outside is just full of fans and photographers and stuff like that. Like, like the the fact that they seem human is uh, even more miraculous in some yeah, ways. Yeah, I, I was actually surprised that at 
you know, year seven of the Beatles, they still just seem so normal and could talk and have regular conversations. Like in the when they first show up, like they are like, oh yeah, George is making the movie and we need to bring in, you know, this, you know, faith healer and stuff like that. But by about day three, they're just like smoking fucking cigarettes and hanging out like like regular people. And I and I really like just dig it and dig it. I they there is some footage of the fans and they're always like so terrifying which should not be a surprise because a lot of people have not mentioned for some reason that the Beatles fandom is as far as I know the only fandom to kill one of the you know <laughs> idols of the fandom and almost kill another people yeah. a lot of people yeah George Harrison was stabbed in his home he had to fight the attacker mm. off and we see lits, a little uh, uh, bits and pieces of you know how they're like freaked out by like the fans waiting outside and the hysteria yeah. and the hysteria around them. No one had been that famous before, maybe like like it just had like worldwide TV, radio, world tours. I don't know mm -hmm. if anybody had really ever experienced that before, but they'd see. But watching this, they dealt with it admirably. Mm -hmm. You know the other the other guy in the movie who died was this guy Mal Evans, their their assistant. He's like their roadie. He's the guy who's banging the anvil in Maxwell's Silver Hammer. He's that big bear oh, yeah. size guy. He was like shot to death by the LAPD in the seventies. Yeah, I read about this. He like was on pills and he went outside with like an air rifle. Yeah, and they called the police and they were like, he has an air rifle, and the cops like shot him dead. That like big dopey assistant guy who yeah uh, Mal. And Go before ahead. this, uh, Brian Epstein, their manager, yeah. you know, overdosed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It very, you know, lots of <clears throat> tragedy around it. It's it's so, so shocking how light it ends up being, even the tenser uh, moments. I thought like, it they, was very. I thought it was very sweet the way that. Uh, I mean, obviously everything's going off the rails for these guys because. Brian Epstein was the guy who grounded them to a certain extent and told them to mm -hmm. where to be and how to dress. And and they spoke in such sort of uh, reverent ways about him. Like they were like, oh, things aren't the same since Mr. Yeah. Epstein passed. And that, and Paul even calls him their dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Paul is, is now having to be the dad literally. And that's part of the struggles because he's like, I don't want to boss everyone around, but I have to or we're not going to be able to finish this tv special concert i may have missed it why was there such a deadline on this because they did end up changing changing it why did they have I think to it make was self-imposed i think that they yeah, just that's what I felt. had a self-imposed that they were planning to do a show and this is what all the producers like got set up and yeah. you know but they're the beatles so like they can just be like well we're gonna we're just gonna move it a million times <laughs> they had to finish by the end of january because ringo was off to go and do the magic christian with peter sellers for a couple of months that was why Sellers was hanging out at the studio because oh, they were filming right. there. They were letting them use the soundstage and until they moved the movie in all started. The gear toward the end there, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. They had to move when all the gear was coming in because uh, they're about to film the movie there. That movie's very funny if you haven't seen it, The Magic Christian. There, uh, Peter Sellers adopts Ringo Starr, and the, and <laughs> he's a zillionaire, and he's basically like blowing through his entire fortune to prove how what what people will do for money. Like, he's just a complete sadist, and uh, it's a very, very funny film. Uh, Jesse, so you got interviewed for Arco for Rolling Stone because you made this really funny thread where you imagine a world where Peter Jackson did a traditional Beatles documentary. <laughs> 
Yeah, where where Peter Jackson, you know, got uh, a deal with VH1 <laughs> to do a uh, <laughs> to do a three hour documentary about how great the Beatles were, and uh, it was inspired, of course, by Twitter because there were all these uh, pedants. Uh, you know, this movie is a very remarkable documentary and and most importantly as an artifact, but all these people were running it through modern sensibilities. Maybe because the movie looks so modern, it sort of frustrated them like they wished that it had been like every other music documentary where they have, you know, Dave Grohl coming on to tell everyone <laughs> that without the Beatles, you wouldn't have Nirvana. You know, and a way that a lot of those uh, rock star interviews and documentaries are very self-serving, like you wouldn't have me if it wasn't for these other famous people kind of attitude. Oh, and, thank um, you so much. Yeah. Um, I was like, so this is what it would look like, guys. Uh, but I started it off with the, with one of my favorite ways to bait people on Twitter, which was to say something that sounds supremely stupid and, and unlettered, like saying, you know, it was an okay <laughs> documentary, but I really wish that they'd had like some context, like who were the Beatles? Like I wish they'd had Dave Grohl on. It was really a real lost opportunity. And then I, you know, found pictures from music documentaries of rock stars being interviewed. And I just came up with the kind of dumb shit they would say, like Dr. Dre saying, you know, Ringo, he's like a drum machine. You got to remember, this was before the invention of the drum machine, you know, like, or Yo-Yo Ma, Yo-Yo Ma finishing up the last part of Eleanor Rigby and saying, this was unheard of in pop music at the time, a string quartet, you know, like, or, or, or somebody had a good one where they had Henry Rollins saying, these guys did not give a fuck. They were the original punk rockers, you know, like that kind of shit. And I, I, I'm baffled by that reaction because I can understand like thinking that for the first few minutes because you, it does have a like 15 minute of a like a rockumentary and then yeah. you're just dropped in with no warning. So I can understand being like, well, what the fuck? Uh, but once you get into it and see their personalities come out, I can imagine you wanting to watch some modern dipshit sitting in a chair uh, <laughs> saying, you know, something you already know. But that is what most people seem to want. They want, they don't want to learn about the Beatles, they want to be told what they already know about the Beatles. There's a million of these specials already, like read mm -hmm. a Wikipedia or something. Like, I actually like that this documentary kind of presupposes that it doesn't hold your hand, that it kind of assu assumes that you like know who the Beatles are <laughs> and what the Beatles' history uh, is. Yeah. It helps you through with the story of what's happening in the documentary. <laughs> yes. Like, it helps you understand, you know, this is George is upset and they went to his house and everything like that. But this is trying to tell a story, and this is not the story of the Beatles and who they were, but it's a story of the Beatles recording this one album between two separate locations. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of what the film is. And the film is not made for boomers and it's maybe <laughs> not even made for Gen X, who's me. Uh, I think it might be uh, like that beginning part where, where I was joking, it was like previously on the Beatles, you know, where they explain uh, the whole history <laughs> of the band. Um, that's uh, just a background for the younger audience, which is the one that's been targeted in this film they've made the movie look modern and they've you know even with its long sort of uh leisurely approach is you know it's kind of like um slow television like where they just assume that if you're interested in this kind of thing there's a lot of it um but you know it's uh, and that frustrates a lot of people who would prefer to be spoon-fed and be told exactly what they're seeing those were the people who were like, I wish there'd been more of an explanation about John Lennon's heroin problem. It's like, you can't ask for an explanation from a drug addict anyway. The reaction to this, especially from people who say they were Beatles fans, like, first of all, they weren't watching it, really. Like, a lot of people just were not 
watching it at all because I would talk about I would try I would say things that the Beatles say about themselves like they're not good players and people like seem to got really upset about uh, that and when I talked about the fact that the Beatles like really you know appreciate the black artists and Paul McCartney talks about how he wished his hands his hands were black at some mm-hmm. point and I did uh, make the mistake Jack I, I, I'm, you might be disappointed in me I tweeted out that white people <laughs> love the Beatles and oh boy. Jesus Christ. I know. I, I Listen, I'm not even on Twitter and people are like, what What do you think of Leslie thinking about this? And when I'm like, this is like maybe the most mad I think people have ever been at you, that, uh, <laughs> at least as far as I can remember. Yeah, the only one I can think of is uh, The Last Jedi. They were pretty mad Last at you for Jedi, that. Last <laughs> Jedi. It's straight because like, okay, you know, everybody, the Beatles are the most popular band of all time. You're like, you're not going to hurt them. Nobody's, crit- but there's been criticism of them for the entire time they existed, people thought they were, uh, you know, uh, you know, a crappy boy band who were stealing yeah. black music when they came out. Like that was always. I think there was anti. There's a, a tons and tons of Beatles diss tracks. Uh, mm-hmm. That some of them are pretty good, and you may be familiar with one called London Calling Phony Beatmania has been the dust and it wasn't even about the Beatles necessarily but about the fact that they were reissuing the albums I think in the late 70s and a lot of you know new bands were like pissed off like listen to fuck it don't listen to the Beatles again listen to New Wave buy, get yeah. something new We once was enough with the Beatles we don't uh, need them again but people in 2021 being so upset about criticism of the Beatles, a band that their grandparents listened to, that was truly, truly baffling to me. And it's so, and it had no real connection to like the Beatles, the documentary itself, or the Beatles no. as like people. Like they weren't defending the people. They were just like, we believe uh, my identity is that I believe the Beatles are the greatest band of all time because that's the most popular thing to believe and uh, anybody yeah. poking holes in that is just like you know spinning on my identity and especially i don't want to hear black people say it but no it, it, it should be a news flash that there's plenty of people whose favorite band is not the beatles and that's okay the beatles favorite band was not the beatles the beatles didn't think they were that yeah. good they like paul mccarty says all our favorite people were black he's very clear about that you can see this in the documentary too so i think if, if you love the beatles beatles you know you don't it's okay and this documentary i think the, the what's been lost is that this documentary is for everybody especially people who don't like the beatles because it takes away all the mythology and you just get to see dudes being chill and hanging out being humans and really likable ones and uh you know uh, i mean leslie you've come to my aid numerous times on twitter when i say (laughs) shit talk the marvel people you know like i say things deliberately to like get people going uh, because I also am trying to sort of uh, get them to come out too and like show their own asses. See, I was not trying to. St- I wasn't trying to stir. I swear to God, it was like six thirty. I was walking the dog, and I was. Re- I had watched a little bit of the documentary, but then I was seeing the reactions, and the reactions seemed to have no connection to the documentary because when I'm watching the yeah. documentary I'm like wow they're playing like shit and then people are like oh my god the be- oh my god wow they're amazing they're pulling these songs out of thin air it's like no they're just working out stuff writing songs and the reason that was important to me to say is because you should watch this documentary and then say wait a minute 
I could probably pick up a guitar and do some of this. They're just sitting around hanging out with their friends and strumming a few chords until they come up with something that sounds sweet. And that's mm -hmm. what music making is. And I wish more people were watching this not as part of this, this you know, mythologizing act, not yeah. as an attempt to deify these guys, but as a, to humanize them because then you can say, wait a minute, there's people in my town, my neighborhood, my kids that play music. Why don't mm -hmm. we, why don't I go listen to them? Why don't we start a band? Like that, You it used to be that you listen to a band and then you want to start a band. Now you listen to a band and you want to make a post. And I think just something has been <laughs> lost uh, about this. Well, because it's like, you know, this is, uh, the other thing that I want to say about this film is that it is more of a piece with a, a, an earlier documentary tradition, like Cinema Verite, than, than of the modern sort of music doc. And what I was making fun of in this uh, tweet storm that I did is that uh, all these, uh, you know, people are so conditioned to watching certain kinds of things and they expect things to be given to them a certain way because they're always done that way. And I thought it was very petty of people to uh, see something that is demonstrably different than everything else and then try to apply uh, these sort of the trivial sort of expectations that you have of your common ordinary documentary against this film. And it's like, well, you know, the Beatles are a little bit of an exception to that rule, I think. And, uh, you know, and you sound uh, sort of silly to be uh, old, like to be criticizing this very generous uh, artistic <laughs> work. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's on a mass cultural platform, but I think the audience for this is a pretty niche audience. Uh, in terms of like who's going to watch the whole thing, I didn't watch the whole thing in eight hours, or or I didn't even watch each three hour chunk. I watched it for about ninety minutes until I was happy and thought, okay, I'm going to stop here because I don't, you know, like you can watch this thing in in and out. You can dip in and out of it. I mean, ever since I've yeah. finished watching it, I found myself going back to watch the part where John and and Paul are tag teaming and destroying George's you know songs like that was so cruel <laughs> when john says to him like do you know what kind of music we play you know like after he <laughs> oh plays i mean mine for him and he's big. like oh is it, we're gonna have a lot of fishwives at our concerts you know like so cruel and paul yeah. like and and paul telling him how to play like that's not a real uh leader of a band is saying play it the way yeah. i want it to be played well, that is such a it's such a great part because and you know you have to leave all that in too because you do see them grow over time like those first when they're first together they like don't like each other <laughs> they really don't like each other they really don't really they don't like each other until they move over um you know back to the to their you know basement studio mm -hmm. and then it seems like slowly but also like i kind of get it because when they're in that stage space there's always like a bunch of fucking executives standing around yeah and they're on like a big weird stage that just does not look conducive <laughs> to like songwriting like i i feel like that even, you know, the, the documentary does a good job of kind of pulling out and revealing, you know, everything that's going on around them. Yeah. But that's almost something that, like, goes unsaid is the, like, I mean, they actually do say it at one point or another, is the, like, we're in a fishbowl of yeah. it all. Like, and, yeah. like, number one, we're arguing with each other. Number two, it's because n there's a thousand eyes on us at any given moment while we're trying to work. 
well, they have a fight in the studio, and then two days later, it's an article in the Daily Mirror. That other great oh, part yeah. where McCartney's just reading this fucking inflammatory <laughs> article about so them. That shit, was, that shit was funny, too, because I'm like, oh, the Beatles are obsessed with their menchies. Just yeah. like all the celebrities of today, like someone talks some shit and they're just like sitting around being like, did you see what this fucking asshole said? Oh, you so know, and, and like just reading it obsessively over and over again. But that's the proof that they have no privacy. That's yeah, the proof. True. Yeah, and I swear to God, Yoko spent most of the time scrolling on her phone, it seemed. I don't yeah. know how. It that just was the other thing. Like that was, that was, well, that was the other thing is I was like, Yoko at one point was reading a newspaper while they were all, while they were all working, and I was like, yeah. that's the old scrolling your phone. <laughs> yeah. It's just having a whole newspaper open and reading. Like that Also, like, you know, that was the, that's the classic, like, dads would be doing it at dinner and everything. That's the old school scrolling your phone is having a giant newspaper <laughs> open covering your entire face and upper body yeah i want to yeah. mention uh yoko just to say yoko ona yoko ono innocent this documentary yeah, proves without a shadow of a doubt that it is not her fault that the beatles broke up in fact it is the fact it is the fault of the fans uh largely i feel who've been blaming yoko as part of the reason uh they, they're more a bigger part of the reason that they broke up than yoko herself they, they yeah. uh, like the they're even like joe they even talk in the commentary won't it be so fucking stupid when people are going around saying that the beatles broke up because uh yoko sat on the amp <laughs> and, like yeah. pre-see uh, they already knew where uh that shit was going but yes. he's like no there's nothing wrong he just wants to hang out with his yes. girlfriend what's wrong there's with a that? whole sequence where they're based they're like where like even the interviewers are kind of trying to get them to be like what do you think about that and they're just like who gives a shit you know what i mean like really <laughs> yeah. what this documentary shows is the reason why you know the uh beatles broke up is the beatles yeah they like started to hate each other and and also it's completely relatable you know what i mean like if you're working with people for like at this point like 15 years like that mm-hmm. shit is going to calcify and resentments are going to build up it mm-hmm. was like it's just really like there's almost it's something like almost like it's very inspiring to watch the Beatles struggle with like all the same creative shit that everybody struggles with, yeah. you know, the uh, egos being built up and, you know, not having it some days and having it on other days and shit like that. Losing kind of, you know, like losing, like being good at guitar. <laughs> like, I feel like yeah. they, for the first little bit, were like trying to like just even get their fingers moving again. You know, it's, yeah. it's all, yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring to watch. Yeah, because they hadn't played together for three years uh, yeah. before this, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned you know being together for a long time. They met when they were in high school. Right. They had mm-hmm. no plans of being together for this long. That's the amazing. The shots of McCartney and Lennon in high school, and them sort of going back to songs they wrote when they were fifteen and shit. I was like, oh yeah, like of course these guys hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, this and this is the mind-boggling thing is that. Uh, they had done everything they'd done, everything they'd achieved, and the oldest guy in the room was 28. <laughs> like, yeah. George Jeez. is That's 25. Amazing. George that is jo- wild. Imagine that like is really being insane. writing something or I Me Mine at age 25. <laughs> man, man. It also does kind of inform their sort of like just being dicks to each other. <laughs> you know yeah, what yes. I mean? Like they are like dicks in their mid 20s. And what band isn't fucking fighting with each other all the time? That's the yes. other thing. Like, you know, I, I said in this Rolling Stone piece that, like, if they'd been making a documentary when they were recording Please Please Me or Rubber Soul, that there'd be fighting and they'd yeah. film it. 
because they're a part band. Of the creative process. You know what I mean? That's the thing that mostly made me feel uncomfortable about it as I was like, wow, this is such an interesting view of the creative process and how embarrassing it is to have cameras in the room. It's yeah. like almost this like contradictory thing where I'm like, I'm so glad I got to see this, but fuck, if I was doing this, I would never have allowed cameras <laughs> in the room yeah. while I was doing it. Well, <laughs> even Paul at one point when he's getting fed up says, I'm not doing this in front of the cameras. Like yes, he just yeah. he 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 holds himself back because fuck this is so incriminating. Yeah. It's a great documentary. It's it's I think it is like it's it, you know aside from all the great stories it is just such like a it's a it's a really well-made documentary oh, with yeah. so many and I, I I agree with you too Jesse that it does kind of feel like I like was in a dream or that I was <laughs> like you know like or like I like remembered working with the Beatles or something yeah. like you kind of just have these sort of snippets of because it is so you know and you you said you watched it in chunks I watched it while I like also did the dishes and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know, and I found it very, you know, and you you definitely go right over and sit down for when it's getting, like, like heated. But there's a lot of sequences where they're just kind of noodling around a song and trying different versions of it. And it is, like, top-tier sort of, you know, planet Earth level, you know, just leave it on as a background documentary oh, kind yeah. of uh, oh, yeah. contender. Uh, there, there were parts where uh, I was just, you know, I got up and walked around with my headphones on and just listened to it. Because first yeah. and foremost, yeah. they're a band. And, you know, it's like listening to their demos and you get some visuals to go along with it. The, the other thing I want to say about this movie is it reclaimed for me some of the songs on Let It Be. I've never really loved that record. But ever since I watched this documentary, I can't stop thinking about I've Got a Feeling and dig a pony like those songs fucking rock there are great there's you know there are great songs on it and and did make me kind of be like yeah let it be is pretty good and also you know uh, this is just docu this is just you know because of what we saw in the documentary but i'm like those are pretty fucking good recordings for being on like a rooftop outside you know what i mean well that's something i didn't know i didn't know that three of the songs on let it be were from fucking rooftop just yeah. from the rooftop. I thought they were like, in the studio and they did it on the roof. I didn't realize that's the stuff that was on the actual record. That's like what they're like, let's just go with that one. It was incredible. It is like it also is incredible just from because I've listened to that album a lot of the a lot of the times. It's like it's like watching a live performance that seems dubbed. Yeah. Because you're so familiar with what the the album version is, but it just actually is that version, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's incredible. A lot footage. Of the, uh, yeah, uh, I think maybe the majority of the songs uh, at least half of, on Purple Rain were recorded at a concert. Well, I saw I saw a clip of a Prince doing Purple Rain from the record at a live concert, and I did not know that that was fucking live. I yeah, thought that it was, that was a, a studio concert. recording, and, and yeah. I could not believe that that was all uh, a spontaneous performance. Yeah, so I think, you know, this document, it didn't change my mind about the Beatles. I still am not a big fan of the Beatles. I'm not a big fan of this, a lot of the songs... Even in this one, I think this but is like... But it does sound like you're a fan of the guys. I the love Beatles. the guys. Like you would so watch the like a, it seems like you would watch like a sitcom starring the Beatles. Absolutely. 1,000%. If they did had a Real Housewives of fucking Liverpool, <laughs> I would be so, yeah. so down. And if they said, hey, guys, we found some footage of uh, this documentary crew was filming them recording Revolver, I would watch that. Oh my God! Please! Oh yeah! Please! <laughs> uh, give us more! Give us more Beal stuff. Let's and the more you get, the less it becomes like this. Uh, I 
if people actually watch it, the less it becomes this big weighty thing and it can just be like, hey, weren't those guys cool? And weren't their friends cool? And then they have a great time. It doesn't have to be this is the greatest band of all time and we can never uh, think anything could ever top it because that's just like oppressive and reactionary conservative and unnecessary. You know, I think that they should provide a special version of Get Back, which has links to stores where you can buy the sweaters that George Harrison's wearing. Because <laughs> I was really impressed by his personal style in this film, George in particular. Oh, you know, another moment. This is just almost like just how rich guys are. It was very funny when George told his assistant, like, I can never get boots. Can you have someone send over a guy with a bunch yeah. of boots? <laughs> I was like, wow, that's like really shades of like working at an agency here in LA or something yeah. like that. Or, or, or they send Mal out to go get an anvil. For the yeah. Maxwell Silver Hammer <laughs> Can recording. Can you get an anvil? Yeah. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. I'm just, uh, so we're coming to the end of our show. And I did want to talk a little bit about the end of the documentary because it is them recording like studio versions of the uh, of the album, but they play the credits over it and it, become, and it feels like, oh, the album is kind of like an afterthought. It's not the mm. destination, it's the journey. It is only the acoustic stuff of the mm. album because yeah. like a lot of the, I think they ended up just sort of making, it's about the performance. Like it really mm. is about that rooftop performance yes. and that, you know, is really the climax of the movie. That's mm. like your third act of the movie. And frankly, you know, if we had to stay in for another 20 minutes, like watching them record all the, the acoustic stuff, I think it would have felt like kind of a downbeat after we saw all that rooftop stuff. So mm. I think it works really well. It's oh, like, yeah, it's I think great. it's smartly placed to put it, uh, to put it in the credits. Yeah. So I thought we still perfect. get it, but we're clear that that part was the end of the the movie that we just saw. I can give you guys a little context because I've actually seen Let It Be, the documentary, the original, that mm. all that stuff is um, basically a concession for Michael Lindsay Hogg. He directed a lot of the sort of prototypical music videos that the Beatles made, like for Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Mm -hmm. You can see those on YouTube. And those those performances are in Let It Be, like with Paul looking right into the camera and seeing the long and winding road. So, you know, if you want to see that stuff, you can watch, you can go find uh, Let It Be on, uh, you know, the Internet Archive. Uh, that stuff seems real staged and for the filmmakers of the documentary and not really. Uh, it's To me, it's a little it's uh, it's it's presented in a different way than the whole rest of the film it's more of an, a self-conscious performance so oh. i'm glad that they sort of shunted it into the end credits yeah yeah i, think I was wondering, wondering how think... they were going to incorporate that footage into the documentary and so i thought when they threw it on at the end credits that that was pretty accurate yeah even with the concert i really liked that they intercut with like the stuff that was happening on the street mm -hmm. is not just the concert footage it all every time you're seeing even when you're seeing the Beatles at their fucking height standing over the UK you're like in some old lady's apartment and she's like complaining and it's like yeah. you realize that it's just like you know these are just all people you know <laughs> yeah and these are the people whose and England was sort of changed I mean uh, if you had a camera crew in Savile Row in 1962 the street would look very different than it did in 1969 and the Beatles have a lot to do with the changing of culture in England, like just the fashions and everything like that. Um, you know, they were majorly influential. They didn't make everything happen, but they certainly uh, were going along with it. And it was very bittersweet at the end, because this is really the end of them as a performing band. Nobody knows that while while this film is being made, because these mm -hmm. the film was being made by these... Uh, the documentary crew discovered while they were making uh, Let It Be was that the band is 
disintegrating. Uh, and this turned out to be the last time they went on stage together. Which is kind of cool because it is so understated. You know, it's not even a stage. You know, yeah. it's yeah. not actually a stage. It was, I, I love all the footage of just like people climbing out on other rooftops nearby and stuff yeah. like that. It just is so cool. I and love the Apple uh, staff fucking with the cops and slowing them down in the <laughs> lobby. <laughs> yes. That shit is so good. That's like out of like Jackass or something. I yeah. know that's not, it's just out of like a prank show or something like that. Them <laughs> being like, well, we're not sure. I think they're just recording up there. You know, maybe if we turn the PA around and stuff like that. How many also the guy from the, the neighbor, yeah. the neighbor uh, saying, oh, yeah. like, there's someone on my roof. And he's like, nothing from us. And then they're like, it's a camera crew. We cut to the shot from that camera crew. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so before we wrap up, favorite Beatle. Uh, I'm going to be normie and say Paul, but George is number two. I love George in this documentary. I've always been a John Lennon man, but you know, as, as I get into my older age, George appeals more and more. After watching this mock documentary, I have to say my favorite Beatle, probably Yoko. Probably Yoko. <laughs> I think Yoko. She, just, she doesn't do a lot, but she seems to get the party going when it needs to get going. I love the not mad actually laughing part at the end when when George takes off and then the band is like, oh, we're fine. And then they start fucking doing that primal scream rock <laughs> with Yoko freaking out like they even let Yoko up on stage. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> All right. So, Jesse, where can people find you? Well, I'm Jesse Hawken on Twitter, and I do have the Junk Filter Podcast. Uh, our Twitter handle is Junk Filter Pod. I've invited you guys on the show. Very soon. All right. Thank you so much. Later. Thank you. First of all, let me just take a moment to welcome everyone. This is a Katie Halper show. I'm Katie Halper. This is Leslie Lee, host of his own amazing show called Struggle Session. Yeah, th- I'm happy to be here on Thursdays as always, but I mean... I, I say this every week, but your booker is just absolutely amazing. The show we have for you today, the energy, the excitement, my God, how I wish, how I wish you were here. Yeah. It's just an absolutely beautiful show that we have with wonderful guests, big news, big stars, all on the Katie Hopper show. Here's the thing, guys. So extremely excited to bring into the show human rights lawyer, Stephen Donziger, who is joining us from predictably, his home, because he's under house arrest, human rights lawyer who took on Chevron and is being really persecuted for it, and legendary musician and activist, Roger Waters. So welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Katie. Oh, my angel. Nice to see you again. It's been too long. Yeah. Roger was kind enough to come on Useful Idiots, and it was a great show. That was when you were with that weird bloke. That weird bloke, yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. yeah don't yeah. worry about that. That's all right. And this is another, he's not a weird bloke. He's a, what would you, wholesome, wholesome bloke, Leslie Lee. Thank you. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Uh, well, um, you're, I, I, but thank you so much for uh, coming on. Thank you so much for your activism and your tireless activism. And you, Stephen, too, I was reading your story and just, you know, it's absolutely amazing um, what you've gone through in the forces you're fighting against. I'm just so honored to be talking to both of you. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Roger, just quickly, Leslie was saying before that he actually knew of you first as an activist and then as a musician. And then 
But and you were a big influence on his. What was your favorite band, Leslie? It was the, the Smashing, Smashing Pumpkins? Pumpkins? And I learned about your music from the Smashing Pumpkins. But I learned about you because of your activism when I was young. Hearing about you were the first person you, who I hear talking about Palestine. And sadly, a lot of when you were young, you were yeah. a puppy. <laughs> yeah. man. But it's just so amazing that you had this wonderful music career, but then you dedicate your life, you know, mm. to service and helping people. I think that's I was really very amazing. lucky. That was a lucky thing. I knew that one day I wanted to grow up and become Steve Donziger's puppy, and now yeah. I am. We, all, we always argue because I want to. I want to have his job, and he claims he wants to have my job. You know? I don't want your job. Are you crazy? <laughs> well, I don't have a job. I'm going to take your job for all the tea in China, fighting <laughs> against these effing assholes at Chevron and Exxon and the whole U.S. government and Joe Biden, all the rest of the ratbags. I don't want your job, brother. I really don't. I'm happy. I'm just a simple bass player, okay? And I'm happy with that. I would love to actually hear, can you guys share how you met each other, how you heard about each other? When did we meet? I tell you, I'm going to tell this story, may I? Yeah. Oh, it's up to you. Yeah. I was, uh, no, I was asking him. He's yeah, my Yeah, I know. Master. I realized that. I realized yeah. that, yeah. Oh, you go. I was, um, it's the only time I've ever pretended to be an actor, okay? And I was pretending to be an actor off Broadway, working for adorable friend of mine called Bob Balaban, famous actor and film director and all the rest of it. The exonerated. He yes. put on the exonerated about the death penalty, yeah, about all these exonerated mean, people. I was in it. You were? He did you me were the one- great honor of saying, do you want to be in it? And I said, are you fucking stupid? I'm not an actor. And he went, no, I, I, you know, I do you know Bob. He's very quiet and studious. And incredibly charming and one of the most wonderful, lovable people that you could ever hope to meet. So he came round to my house and he gave me the script. He said, you're somebody called Gary Gorga. You've been accused of a capital crime and you're about to be executed. This is your story. Do you think you can do it? I said, fucking, I don't know, Bob. And he went, well, pretend you're acting. So I did. And he went, you're a natural. And I thought, you lying swine. But I didn't. <laughs> refused to do it I went I tell you why I didn't because I've always thought that I had one part in me but I've always thought that it was to play a high court justice at the old bailey or some I sort of see myself in a long wig with a pair of pince-nez on my nose <coughs> coughing a bit and then you know and then I will get my one line which will be take the prisoner down and that's sort of where I was hoping for that. But this was pretending to be a real person who was about to be executed. And so... The opposite. Anyway, I was sitting next to Kathleen Turner. Is that... No, that's not her name. The actress? Trudy I'll remember her name. Wonderful, wonderful actress who was sitting next to me for seven nights. And then one night she couldn't do it. So they wheeled in... Um, an understudy, and the understudy was Trudy Styler, the famous producer of movies and also wife of that well-known, what's Loke. his name, always wears a rugby shirt in the photographs. You know who I mean, anyway. Stinger, stung. Exactly, Sting. Stingray. Yeah, Stingray, and, yeah. And, um, and uh, so we acted for an hour and a bit, and then we had a bit of a boogaloo afterwards because Clive Stafford-Smith, the well-known guy who started Reprieve and whatever, came down and, and it was a bit of a party. And then Trudy said, let's go and have dinner at somewhere or other. And I went, yeah, all right. 
and he was there, young Donziger, and this was back in 2012, I think, some, somewhere around there anyway. And so obviously we started to talk about Ecuador and about the fact that he was representing these people and where it was all going and what. And of course, I knew nothing about it. It's like that weird moment in your life when something's going on and you know nothing about it and it's complete news to you, but it's life and death to them. This is where they live and they're living day to day, having these billions of gallons of toxic waste dumped on them into their lives and have been since 1961 or sometime when Texaco, who were the company who actually did it, started doing it. Well, in 2012, you'd been involved for about, what, 12 years or something, 11 or 12 years by then? No, you'd be, how, how long have you been involved? Since 1991? 19. I started in 1993. There you go. Roger's describing a dinner where by that time I had met Trudy because she had been to Ecuador a couple of times to check it out and help. So we we had become friends and I met Roger through Trudy at this dinner and we talked a lot and seemed to have a lot in common. (laughs) We've since become pretty good friends. I'd say actually quite good friends over the years to the point where I actually convinced Roger when he was on tour in Latin America a couple of years ago, he had a stop in Columbia and Bogota. And I said, Hey, that's like next door. Get on a plane and come meet me and we'll go down to the jungle, which he proceeded to do. And it was one of the biggest events that year in the whole country of Ecuador, Roger Waters coming. And the fact he took the time to visit the victims of Chevron's pollution was extraordinary. And the next day he held a press conference in Quito. And I've been going to Ecuador for 25 years. I mean, I've probably had 100 press conferences in Quito. And this one had, I've never seen so many journalists at a press conference in Ecuador. There must have been 500 journalists. And Roger... It's the way I play the bass, man. <laughs> no, no, no. You know what it is? Like, he was so smart, like the way he talked about the case. And I'm like, at the end, I'm like, you could have been a barrister. I'm like, you know, it's just crazy. He's really, he's incredibly smart, man, when it comes to his legal issues. Yeah. And he knows a little bit about music and entertaining and choreography and meaning of life. Lenin Moreno, yeah. okay, who was the president of Ecuador at the time, tried to prevent my plane from landing. That was crazy. That was crazy. Really? And then when it did land at Quito, he then, they then, I was told politely by the officials there, you cannot fly to, I can never remember if it's Lago Agrio. Lago. Lago Agrio. Lago Agrio, yeah. The town. You cannot fly to Lago Agrio. We will not give you permission. We've la- They didn't want me to land. They let me land. They said, so I said, could I talk to, and I was very polite, and I asked if I could speak to somebody from what passes for the FAA or whatever in Ecuador. And so they said I could. And I got this nice chap on the phone. I explained to him that I was going to make a frightfully loud noise if they didn't let me fly to Lago and they said, well, you can then, but you can't take that bastard Dunziger with you because he is a thorn in our sides and he is definitely not going. And I went, right, well, get ready for the pain in the side because either Dunziger comes with me or I'm making a huge fucking noise about this or whatever. And they went, just a minute, Mr. Waters, we come back to you. And, they said, and they went and had a word with Lenin Moreno or his I, whoever it was, but right. I know we were in, you know, in contact with them. And they went, we've changed our minds. Don's a go, for God's sake, be quick and don't make any noise and 
fuck off. So we did, and it was incredibly moving. You know, when you when you get off a plane and walk out and there's like, what were there, Stephen? About 100, 100 Indigenous people standing there in the courtyard, and they were all like these women who came up to sort of just above my navel and I was I was seriously overcome uh, with emotion with with these people who really didn't know me from Adam and there's no reason why they should but just to be given a voice of some kind you know let us not forget, they'd won a judgment against Chevron Corporation for $9.5 billion. And these motherfuckers had said, we're not paying you a single cent. Leave us alone. We are Chevron. We're a big fossil fuel company and we are powerful. You will not want to be around when we start spending money through Gibson Dunn and the corrupt fucking judges on the South Circuit in New York because the shit is going to fly and you're all dead. That's kind of what they said. And he, luckily, went, hmm, that doesn't sound like the kind of law I learned at Harvard Law School. What is this? Is this a banana? Are we living in a banana republic, you know, with kangaroo courts? The answer we discovered, obviously, was yes, we are. And that's why he's wearing an ankle bracelet around his ankle. 660 days into, he's going to show there it is. Oh, you took it off. Are you going to get into trouble now? Oh, that's the cover. Yeah, this is not the the bracelet is on my leg 24 7. This is the battery that I slide to the side of it to charge it. Wow. Happens to be on that. It's like the same size as this, like a garage door opener. It never right. leaves. You know what, Katie? I'm sorry to interrupt, but th- we are. This is we're excited now because Chevron and Exxon had their AGMs when yesterday, Stephen. Yeah. Tell them what happened at their AGM. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, please update us on the latest. Well, they, have, they got. They got. First of all, thank you for having us on. I love Roger Leslie. Mm-hmm. Pleasure to meet you, Katie. You're a great journalist. Basically. I've been going to Chevron or monitoring them, their shareholder meetings for really 15, 20 years because the Ecuador case always comes up. I have never seen the fossil fuel industry get spanked between Exxon and Chevron like it did yesterday. I mean, every resolution got overwhelming support from shareholders about reports on net carbon admissions, on cleaning up Ecuador. You know, Exxon, this this small hedge fund placed two uh, climate activists on the Exxon board. I mean, this has never happened before. And I... I, This was a a shareholders meeting? I'm sorry, I didn't set this... AGM, annual general meeting. Shareholders put forth resolutions to force management to change policies, or in this case, around climate change. And it's, it's a really fascinating thing to watch, you know, part of our securities laws require one of these a year and any shareholder, even if you own one share of stock, you can put up a resolution. And what's ended up happening is because of the work of a lot of people over many years, like it's reached a crescendo, I'd say a tipping point where the management of these big companies, Exxon, Chevron, are losing their grip. They're losing power. You know, Exxon, they're losing money. Exxon has been removed from the, you know, the Dow Jones, you know, big company index. Chevron is hurting in many ways. And they're really hurting because they're in a death industry like tobacco. I mean, what they do is get oil out of the ground. In Chevron's case, in Ecuador and other places, they leave billions of gallons of toxic waste in the environment, killing off indigenous peoples. 
um, while they're destroying the planet because of fossil fuels. So, you know, I think if we lived in a just world, our government should nationalize the entire fossil fuel industry and phase it out, because if we don't do that, we're all going to die. You know, I have a particular story because we won this big lawsuit against Chevron on behalf of indigenous peoples in Ecuador, $9.5 billion, and they refused to pay. And they're attacking me. You know, I'm probably the target of the largest, well, most well-financed corporate retaliation campaign ever. Been in house arrest for two years on a misdemeanor. Haven't been convicted of a crime. But it's it's there's a vicious battle going on. And yesterday was a, a momentous victory for citizens who want to deal with the climate issue. I mean, I just can't tell you. It's just awesome to watch. So this is perfect timing because we have you right after this victory. It's perfect. It's perfect timing. We are sending a message to Randy Musto and all the other scumbags at Gibson Dunn who've been fighting this battle on behalf of That's Chevron's law firm that they've made millions by locking me up. But last year, Roger directly addressed the CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth, in the shareholder meeting. You can see the video on online. But you know, because of COVID, this year and last year, the shareholder meetings were via Zoom. And the shareholders who sponsored the resolutions made videos last year with Roger and Alec Baldwin. This year, Susan Sarandon did one, but they're powerful videos that confront, you know, Chevron's CEO with the really the atrocity of deliberately dumping billions of gallons of toxic waste into, into the Amazon and refusing to abide by a court order that it clean it up. And just so, I mean, people, I think We've been covering the story of Useful Idiots. I brought it up here. I've been tweeting about it. Obviously, you two have. Mm-hmm. But in case people aren't aware, this is basically because Stephen was what you've been locked up for without being convicted is being in contempt of court for not handing over private communications, right? Yeah, computer and cell phone to Chevron. And it's un- the order that I do so is unprecedented in U.S. history. I mean, lawyers do not turn over their internal communications and confidential communications to adversary counsel in the middle of a case, you know. So I'm being targeted by Chevron. I'm being prosecuted, not by the government, but by a Chevron law firm named Seward and Kittle. I mean, there's a lot of extraordinary features to what's happening to me that raise really disturbing questions about our judicial system. Which is... I mean, I can get into... Details if you want, but I'm. No, I mean, I was going to say one of the most shocking things, and then Leslie, of course, if you have any questions, I'll throw throw to you. But one of the the most shocking things about this case to me, as an outsider who doesn't, you know, have a law degree, but has watched a lot of Law and Order, but one of the most shocking things to me is that they refused to prosecute you. Right, the prosecutors would not prosecute you, and the judge had to go and get a a firm to prosecute you. A private law firm to prosecute me. And then he hid the fact that the firm he chose, I mean, he could have chosen a lot of different former federal prosecutors to prosecute me, but he chose one that has Chevron as a client. I mean, it's the most extraordinary thing. That's why we say this is the first corporate prosecution in U.S. history. I'm being prosecuted by Chevron. If you were in my trial, Roger was in my trial last week. It was a, it was a farce. I mean, there was no jury the judge is a leader. Loretta Presque is a leader of the Federalist Society. Chevron's a major donor. My prosecutor, Rita Glavin, comes from a Chevron law firm. And the charging judge, Lou Kaplan, whose charges were rejected by the normal federal prosecutor, has investments in a mutual fund that has investments in Chevron. I mean, I was in like, your trial, Stephen. I'm going to interrupt you. I was in yeah. your trial in 2014, February 2014, in the in the civil RICO. The RICO. Talking about the RICO trial, the underlying. Yeah, exactly. Which is, but but this is all part of it. 
fundamentally, this is the fundamental question. Do we want to live in a world where everybody has recourse to the law? I do. Yeah. I really do. The law has taken us a long time to develop, okay? It goes back way beyond Runnymede, which was 1214 to 1297, when Magna Carta was written and when we started to figure out how to whittle down the power of the kings and the barons and the whatever. But So we've now arrived at a place, and we eventually arrived at habeas corpus, for instance, which is a fundamental tenet. It's actually Article 29 of the Magna Carta, okay, which says that um, no man shall be imprisoned save that his case is heard by a jury of his peers. That's roughly what Article 29 is. Well, that's been thrown out of the window. In the United States of America, habeas corpus disappeared with the invasion of Iraq or with 9-11 or with with, um, whatever the – what am I trying to say? George Bush. No, I'm talking about the Patriot Act and the the amendments – 2021 and 2022, the amendments to the Patriot Act. Of course. I was just going to say those numbers. Of course you were, Katie. I knew you were about to say it. I'm going to wait now until you say the rest of what I was going to say. No, no. I'm going to go for it. So those amendments say that at the behest of the commander-in-chief, who up until very recently was a bloke called Donald Trump, you know, who I wouldn't let feed my fucking dog, you know, because he's not to be trusted. But... At his whim, upon his say-so, could lock any of us up forever without even making a phone call. This is, in, this is written law in the United States of America. So you could say that this case, where you let people with a lot of money trample roughshod over people who haven't got any money at all, which is his 30,000 clients in Ecuador in the rainforest, but the people who've got a lot of money and can pay Gibson Dunn and their hired hands are allowed to have their way. So the law is for the rich. Boom. End of story. Well, this is wrong, and this is what we the people are fighting against. I know you are. I know Leslie is, and we too are as well. But this is what we have to galvanize people to do is to say, no, this is wrong. Everyone must have recourse to the law all over the world, irrespective of their race, color, creed, religion, nationality, blah, 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 blah. That is why we're here. All right, I finished my little speech. (laughs) No, it was good. Got me riled up. Leslie, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. So, Stephen, I mean, your story is so bizarre, and there's almost zero chance that this won't be a movie at some point, just because it's so bizarre, but... So basically, they're trying to accuse you. The underlying accusation is that you are more or less a, a sort of a lawyer slash cartel leader who is also crazy, too, because I saw some of the defenders, some of the people saying, oh, this Steve, he's a kook. He doesn't know. He's all. like, what is like what is the underlying? lying accusation against you because it sounds completely ridiculous like you orchestrated this big multi-billion dollar judgment against chevron somehow you were able to do that and yet you've been all even with all your power and you know connections you're under house arrest by by them that doesn't make sense to me yeah i mean 
what I tell people, first of all, I'm an ethical person and I've never had a client complaint in 30 years of law practice. The only complaint I've had is from Chevron and its allies. Okay. And it's because we won the judgment in Ecuador. I tell people, and I believe this to be true. If I didn't exist, Chevron would have to invent me. They need a person to focus attention on so that people do not think about the environmental crimes they committed in Ecuador against the indigenous people. So they want everyone to think about Steve Donziger and not think about the fact they lost a $10 billion case in the court of their choosing where they accepted jurisdiction and they refused to pay the money because they're fundamentally grifters and they don't want to pay judgments that they lose. So instead of paying the people of Ecuador that they poisoned, and trust me, this was not an accident. The courts found that this was done by design. The pollution was done by design. Instead, they're spending two, $3 billion on 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to attack me and other people. I mean, it's a moral outrage. It's unethical. I believe it's illegal. I think it's one of the more sordid and disgusting examples of corporate misconduct in our history. But it's happening, and I'm partly, I'm one of the victims of it. Compared to my clients, I probably have it pretty good, at least in my house. I mean, many of my clients in Ecuador have died of cancer or are suffering from cancer and they can't get medical treatment. They can't get clean water. People need to understand, like here where we live, you need water. At least you can go to your sink and turn on the faucet. That doesn't happen down in the Amazon. People rely on rivers and streams and groundwater for their water. And all of that was poisoned by Texaco, now Chevron, as part of a deliberate design to save money. And so many people have died and you can't really live in this area now without drinking you know, contaminated water or eating contaminated food or breathing contaminated air. You're, there are people that are getting walloped multiple times a day with these exposures, many are dying. And it's all because Chevron A did it and did it to save money to make, to increase their profits even higher. And B, they won't comply with court judgments to clean it up. Instead, they attack lawyers like me and get us locked up through private corporate prosecutions. This is crazy. I'm just telling you, this is insane what's happening. People need to pay attention. We can't let them get away with this. This is a new corporate playbook by this industry to go after successful human rights lawyers who hold them accountable for their pollution. Cut. Okay. (laughs) I'm interrupting him because the good news is, thanks to people like you, Leslie, Katie, and a, uh, a bunch of people, we have reached a tipping point. We're at a tipping point. I put on my cafe only because I normally do, but also because it's, his case is actually very like the is, Israel-Palestine. Uh, I don't call it a debate because it's not, but it, 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 it's now become a conversation and it's a public conversation. And we are reaching a tipping point in that conversation as well. Yeah.